0: Welcome to the Attractions Group Podcast. I'm Don Helbig alongside Ryan Sir. This is episode number 42 for us. You can follow us on Twitter. It's attractions underscore GRP. Follow us on YouTube. Subscribe, please to our YouTube channel. And you can listen to the show on all your favorite podcast apps. We also have sponsorship opportunities available for the show and our pick six. Uh, Ryan, 42
1: episodes. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. And I am officially geeking out for today's episode, because I am so excited about this. But you know what, I'm gonna pass the buck. We've got a special third guest host tonight uh, because we have a very special guest. So we've got the proprietor of the Attractions Group on here, David Detling. David, why don't you tell us what we got going on tonight?
2: Yes, I'm in the third chair. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, Yes, we actually have a very special guest. Uh, Either you know this person or you don't. Uh, There's really no in between. If you participated in the Tuesday morning coffee pool, or I'm sorry, water cooler talk in the mid-1990s, you definitely knew who the guy was. If you read in my social media posts in the past week, and you knew also. But uh, in the 1980s, he was a, uh, and I might be corrected here if I get the progression correct, but uh, he was a meat salesman, uh, commercial landscaper, might have got those two uh, backed around, TV ad sales executive, Kendall interviewer, broom salesman, uh, commentator, third string, uh, then turned executive producer, on-air personality, author, television producer, co-host of the popular 83 Weeks podcast, uh, and last but not least, a WWE Hall of Famer. Welcome, Eric Bischoff. Eric, how you doing?
3: Good. I, you know what all that means? It means I can't hold a job.
2: <laughs> <laughs> You've
1: gotten promoted a lot. <laughs>
3: Now, that was uh that, that was a pretty good job. You know, the meat salesman thing, I'm gonna let that one slide, but I was actually a sales manager for a food processor, not quite the same thing. Um, <laughs> the landscaping thing that happened, you know for, for while I was at college and decided to drop college and start my own landscaping construction business and it 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 took off, became the third largest commercial landscape and construction company in the state of Minnesota, and any number of other things. I get bored easily. So I just move on to the next project. (laughs) Keep going.
1: Just keep going.
3: (laughs) Well, Eric, uh, for those who
0: don't know, how did you go from, you know, being an on-air personality to a big wig at Turner
3: broadcasting? Oh God, I don't even know. Well, I do know, you know, for the, for the same reason as I, I had all of those different jobs throughout my life. And I joke about, you know, I get bored easy and, and all that. But that is the truth. You know, I, I broke into the wrestling business as David mentioned back in 1987. I didn't have any, didn't have any desire to get into the wrestling business. I never thought I would. I, I thought it never crossed my mind, but as so often happens in life, um, I just coincidentally ended up in a meeting Not coincidentally, I asked for the meeting, but and, and I made a random call, ended up in a, meeting. I was pitching uh, Vern Gagne on a project I was working on. Uh, he bit. We, we engaged and did a little business together. But during the process of, of doing that business together, Vern offered me a job to handle their sales and syndication. And I didn't even know what syndication was. So I had to get an education. A guy by the name of Mike Shields, who's no longer with us, but a very, very talented guy. Mike Shields worked for another promoter by the name of Jerry Jarrett, Uh, for a long time. Mike was really well-versed, well-rounded in all the different aspects of wrestling production and promotion. Mike, I think, saw something in me. Uh, I'm not sure what. Maybe just because I was a hustler. Still am. But even more so then. um, Youth. You know, I was 32. (laughs) And, uh, Mike offered me a job and trained me, taught me about the television business, taught me about sales, taught me about syndication. I learned about Nielsen and how all that works and why it's important and how to talk to television executives, uh, um, local station owners, executives there, program directors, and so forth. And my job was basically to convince local television stations that weren't carrying wrestling Within the five-state area of Minnesota, because that was Vern's territory back in the territory days, um, my job was to convince him to carry Vern's professional wrestling show. And and I learned a lot working for Vern. I learned the fundamentals. You know, once I got pretty comfortable with sales and syndication, I did quite well for Vern. Um, I started working sponsorships. And Vern had never had a sponsor before, which blew my mind, right? The AWA was very, very successful in, in the Midwest. There was a point in time when the AWA was probably, WWWWWE was probably better or bigger in the 70s and early 80s, but that was primarily because the Southeast just has a higher density of population and it's a lot easier to tour uh, in, the, in the Northeast than it is in the Midwest where cities and towns can be two or 300 miles apart. But Vern was a very, had a very lucrative and successful promotion and I got to work in all aspects of it. Once I got pretty good at sales and syndication, like I said, I landed a $100,000 sponsorship from G. Heilman Brewing Company out of La Crosse, Wisconsin. And it's, G. Hyleman is no longer around. <clears throat> but at the time what Heilman did was they bought up a lot of small breweries like in Texas, they they owned Lone Star Beer, for example. In Washington State, they owned Veneer. You know, they owned a lot of regional brands, and they just kind of aggregated them under one <clears throat> brewing umbrella called G. Heilman Brewing Company. So I, I landed that sponsorship. I actually promoted an event. The very first event I ever promoted was because I landed that sponsor. And I promoted a... Ah, touch football game between the AWA all-stars and a whole bunch of other people. And the other people included a lot of, you know, celebrities, local celebrities, but also some great athletes. Uh, George, uh, not George Foreman, Chuck Foreman, who I think was a running back for the Minnesota Vikings in his day. One of the best for, for a couple of years, Dave Casper, I think it was a lineman for the Oakland mm-hmm. Raiders. He played with us. Bob Lertzema, You probably never heard that name, but uh, Bob was a, he was a lineman for the Minnesota Vikings and a whole host of others like that, TV personalities, local radio personalities. And we ended up putting like 10,000 people in the Metro dome, which is where the Vikings played. So that was my first experience in promoting. And I kind of kind of dug it. So I started promoting small events, you know, Mason city, Iowa, Dubuque, Nominee, Wisconsin, small little markets, but it was a great learning experience. And I eventually was able to sit in and learn. You know, I, I grew up watching, you know, I'm 68 years old this month. And I, you know, when in, in the late 50s, early 60s, mid 60s, when I was a kid, impressionable, television was still relatively new, especially where I live, because I lived in a... Eh, lower middle class part of Detroit. And, you know, everybody worked in factories and you know, we had one TV. There were people, me, I had friends that I went to school with. They didn't have a TV, just more of an economic issue than anything that I grew up in. So TV was still like a big deal. You know, at night, you know, we sit around my mom, my dad, my brother, sister, and I, and, you know, after you eat dinner, sitting around that television set was like, you did that every night, man. That's part of your, part of your bonding experience, I guess. So I was always fascinated though. I couldn't figure out how television works. Like, how the hell do you get this? How do you get the sound? How do you get the imagery? How do you, how does this, how does it, it's kind of like a microwave oven. Do any of you guys know how a microwave oven works? No, 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 (laughs) And then very few people Mm. do. And that's kind of like the way I felt about television. It's like, wait a minute. I watch this thing every day. It's such an important part of our culture. I don't know how the damn thing works. So I had to figure it out. So I started at night because Vern did a lot of post-production at night. Guy by the name of Joe Chupik actually was the director and, or excuse me, Mike was the director. Joe was the head of production, but Joe would edit, you know, late into the evenings and duplicate tapes and all kinds of stuff. And all that was like, a mystery to me, so I sat in and just watched, and eventually learned how to how to edit and all the things that go along with post-production. I never did it for Vern as part of my job, but I just was I just had to know how it worked. And once I did that, um, I, I ironically sitting in my office one day, and I think it was Greg Gagne came to my office and said, "Hey, you know we need you." Uh, Larry Nelson, who was there Gene Oakland, Gene had gone off to the WWF, left Vern. Gene worked for Vern, Bobby Heenan worked for Vern. Hulk Hogan worked for Vern. A lot of big Kurt Hattie worked for Vern. A lot of them all left Vern, right? And Larry Nelson, who was the guy, who was the stick man, conducted all the interviews, uh, got a DUI and was in jail. I didn't have an announcer that could handle it. So they came and got me because they knew I had a sport coat in my office. It's the only reason. And, uh, I was the only other warm body there to be honest. So they came and got me and got through the day. I'd never done it before. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Scared to death, intimidated by a room full of 40 or 50 wrestlers who were all laughing at me as I'm struggling through this process. Got through the day, went, okay, shoo, never again. They'll find somebody to hire. They'll find somebody else to hire. And uh, they did. He lasted about a week and brought me back. And they found somebody else. He lasted about a month. Fired him. Then they hired somebody else. Actually, the guy they hired third, his name was Ralph Stranges. Like me, had never really done any broadcasting before. He was trained by Vern. And went on to become the play-by-play announcer for the uh, Dallas North, or excuse me, the Minnesota North Stars, who evidently, or not eventually, I should say, not evidently, eventually was sold to Dallas. And Ralph was the uh, play-by-play announcer for the Dallas North Stars for the longest time. He may still be, for all I know. So there you go. That's how I made my way out out of Minnesota. I got hired by WCW as an announcer. I was hosting a show Monday through Friday on ESPN, so I had some visibility and hit by that time I got decent. I wasn't good, but I wasn't horrible. I was somewhere between horrible and good yeah. as far as on camera.
2: Eric, there's a lot of history that, ha- I mean, it's, it's fascinating because there's a lot of history that happened because you decided to uh, take a sports jacket to the school or to, to work. And uh, it, it's just fascinating. It's just a chance decision that you made.
3: Yeah. You know, I, I say, David, I, I, I tell my kids this all the time. I try to, encourage younger people. You know, once you get to my age, it's kind of hard to motivate people. You know, it's hard to motivate a 68 or 70-year-old They're just kind of set in their ways. But I have found that throughout my entire life, it's undeniable, it is a truth, that the most valuable opportunities that come your way are the ones that you never saw coming. You're in the right place at the right time. I mean, it's big factor for everything, right? And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time and had the right personality or the right energy or whatever. And yeah, had I not gone to AWA, had I not pitched that silly thing I pitched to Vern, had I not done a lot of things, I don't know what would have happened with WCW. I think it probably would have evaporated long before.
2: yeah. Well, and one of the questions I had, and in, in this follows with that. I think I had that uh, l- later in the, the, the questions, but um, how did you convince executives in the Turner organization to take, a, in your words, a third string uh, commentator and make him the head guy? H- how on earth, did, were you just a person with an idea? Or were you just a, uh, you know, t- take me, take us through that. What?
3: Yeah, I mean, and again, part of it, uh, part of that is timing, right? And I now I had been working for WCW for a couple of years. By this point, I, I think I went to work for WCW in 91 as a talent third string announcer. I was a backup to Tony Schiavone and Jim Ross. I did all the things they didn't have time to do. That was basically my job. And I was thrilled with that job, by the way, before get because the part I left out is for the last six months or a year of working with Vern the last six months, for sure. I didn't get paid. So, you know, I had a house and two young kids. I had a mortgage. I lived out in the country of Minnesota, and everybody, I don't know, if you guys seen it or are aware of it, but a lot of people heat with propane. Big propane tanks, and truck comes out and fills it up once every couple months. Well, I couldn't afford propane. I was so broke. My kids were eating rice and beans, basically. Um, not able to pay my bills. They were repossessing cars out of my driveway. IRS was breathing down my back, big time. They actually showed up at my house. It was crazy. I owed him like twenty grand, and you would have thought that I owed him twenty million. But it was a tough time for me. So when I got the call to go to work for WCW, you know, uh, Jim Herd hired me, and it was like my salary then was seventy thousand a year. This was in nineteen ninety one, and I thought I won the lottery. I thought I was like the richest person I knew. And in some respects I was, you know, for my age, like a lot of my friends were, you know, making 45, 50, 55, 60 grand a year. And I had one friend who was an attorney and he made 75 a year, but he was an attorney. And I thought to myself, man, I'm making attorney money. I should have never graduated high school legitimately. I I can't believe they let me graduate because I didn't go, I just didn't go. I went during wrestling season because I was on a wrestling team and you couldn't be on the wrestling team if you didn't go to school. So I showed up for classes during, you know, I'd start going to classes about a month before wrestling season, three weeks before wrestling season, and then make the team and I'd go to classes during the season. And then once the season was over, I would, I was gone. I was working. I had two part-time jobs all through high school. So that's why I never went. But I did, it, you know, to, to to get that job offer from from Jim Hurd and WCW for seventy grand a year at the time, I needed the money so badly. You know, it was a lot of money to me, and I only had, you know, I'd leave my house Sunday night, fly to Atlanta, work on Monday, sometimes work on Tuesday, and fly home Wednesday. So it was like a part-time job, and it was it was great. I I, I didn't aspire much, like I didn't aspire to get into the wrestling business. I had no aspirations at all to get into management. Zero. I had no desire to live in Atlanta. Actually, I really never liked Atlanta. It's too hot and humid for me. It's just not my thing. Um, but this is where the timing comes in. You know anything about WCW's history, they brought in a guy by the name of Bill Watts. Watts was the, you know, there was a real turnstile of executives in WCW because they couldn't figure out how to make it work. And they brought in Bill Watts because Bill Watts had been successful in the Mid-South with his small territory, much like Vergania had been successful up in the upper Midwest. They brought in Bill Watts and he was a complete disaster. Not only from just an operational point of view and a management point of view, definitely a disaster, but he, keep in mind, this is Turner Broadcasting. Don't expect you guys to know too much about Ted Turner, but Ted, Ted has done a lot He's still with us. So I'll speak about him in the present, but Ted did a lot for minorities, not only within Turner Broadcasting, but outside of Turner Broadcasting. You know, Ted believed in Atlanta. He believed in the inner city and Bill Watts came out one day, did an interview with Wade Keller from PW torch still writes to this day. And in that interview, said some things that I won't even repeat here. I won't quote him. Um, Today he would just get vaporized, but it was very, very controversial, very racist, very controversial, very demeaning. And somehow that dirt sheet, that interview made its way to Hank Aaron, whose office was by the way, right next to Ted Turner's. That's how much Ted Turner thought of Hank Aaron. I mean, it wasn't right next to it, but it was very, very close. proximity—probably probably 45-second walk. Ted thought a lot of Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron was very much involved with the Atlanta Braves at the time. And one of the most wonderful people I've ever met, by the way. A genuine, genuine, classy, brilliant guy in his own way. But that interview made its way to Hank Aaron then it made its way to Ted and then Bill Watts got fired. While all that was going on, WCW was hemorrhaging money. They weren't really making much to begin with. They were only grossing about 24 million a year and, and they were losing $10 million a year in the process at that time. So things were so horrible at WCW that, Vice President of Human Resources, a guy by the name of Bill Shaw, took over WCW temporarily. It was never meant to be a long-term thing. He was the Vice President of Human Resources at Turner Broadcasting, so he he had another job. (laughs) But because of the things that had gone on in WCW, not just the Bill Watts thing, but there were other things, lawsuits, and a lot of them were just stupid, but nonetheless... Ted finally got to the point where he said, look, Bill, either find a way to turn WCW around and at least get it to break even and figure out how to keep us out of the headlines, or we need to pull the plug. So Bill Shaw came, called a meeting right after they fired Bill Watts he called the meeting for all the employees. I was one of them. And basically said, here's the deal. we don't turn this thing around in relatively short order. Ted is going to pull the plug. Now, the reason that's so important is because the entire executive committee at Turner Broadcasting wanted to pull the plug on WCW three days after Ted bought it. Nobody in the, in the, the, the Turner executive team, I mean, I'm talking about the rarefied air, you know, the head of finance, the head of legal, um, the highest ranking people in Turner Broadcasting wanted to pull the plug on it, but Ted fought it for years until the Bill Watts thing happened. And that's when Ted said, okay, we either fix it or we, pull it. so all of us in WCW were under a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure and we're fearful. And that's when Bill Shaw said, we're going to hire an executive producer who is going to be in charge of the television product because Turner Broadcasting is a television company, and WCW is a part of a television company, and we're going to quit treating wrestling like wrestling has been treated for decades, and we're going to treat it like a television product, and we're going to hire an executive producer to do it. I kind of like that. That was good good to hear, because we were evolving, taking a step forward, but at that same time, because I didn't like Bill Watts at all, I despised him, actually. He was a bully. He treated people very badly. He was a very, you know, hes a big guy. He was a real big guy. He was a professional wrestler. He was notorious for being a tough guy. But he was actually a punk. He was actually a bully. In my, in my experience, and I've had a lot of it in this area, people that are bullies and push people around and try to intimidate people, are generally the most insecure people you'll ever meet. And I you know, I grew up in Detroit. I've, I've been through all that. I can read people in that regard really, really well. I just saw him as an insecure bully that people were afraid of. So I, I, before he even got fired, like months before he got fired, I had started developing a television show for kids. Kids live action game show. It was basically a, how would I best describe it? Uh, it was before Nickelodeon stuff came out, but it was essentially, I would take kids and they would be coached by a a wrestler and they would compete in a lot of kids kind of quasi physical competition. Nothing, not like wrestling or anything, not contact, but we would just kind of create, it was called kids team challenge. And I actually sold it to Fox. I created this thing. I never created a television show before, but I created this thing and Went out to Los Angeles with a guy by the name of Jason Hervey. Jason Hervey at the time was on a hit television show. Um, He's won multiple Emmys. He's now in the Smithsonian Institute of Television, by the way. Hmm. But he was a star of a show called The Wonder Years at the time. And he was also dating Missy Hyatt. So he'd come out from L.A. to have some fun with Missy and hang out. He was a huge, and Jason still is, a huge wrestling fan. Jason and I got to be friends and acquaintances and I said, Hey dude, I'm staying over at the Omni hotel. I got something I'd like to show you because I had my my storyboards and I had my pitch all laid out. I wanted to get Jason's opinion. on it. And I brought Jason came up to my room. We had a beer and I said, okay, take a look at this and tell me what you think. And he loved it and got all excited about it. And we became partners right on the spot. And because Jason, had been in Hollywood, you know, Jason Hervey started on camera as a talent when he was four, he was doing TV commercials over in Japan when he was six years old. He did, you know, I don't know how many movies he did like Pee Wee's big adventure and back to the future. I mean, he had done some, some substantial stuff and he was very well connected in Hollywood through his family. His mother was a talent agent. His uncle still is to this day one of the biggest managers of kind of like the super elite of Hollywood. I, I don't know if he manages these people. When I say manages it, I mean, manages their money, their finances. Um, Clint Eastwood, Barbara Streisand that, that level of, so we, Jason had access to just about anybody. And with Jason, we set up a, pitch meeting with a lady by the name of Molly miles. Molly was the head of programming for Fox back when Fox had a children's block on Saturday morning. They don't do anymore, but they did that. So we went and pitched Molly and she loved the show. She loved the idea. Ended up buying it. Never made it to air. It got shelved, but bought the show, got a check. Um, and that just made me go, you know what? I'm, I, going back to WCW, Bill Watts, all the bullshit, I didn't see any future in it for me. I really didn't. And I, financially, I had kind of got caught up and, and was in pretty good shape. You know, I wasn't rich by any stretch. I wasn't making that much money. I think I got a raise or two along the way. I was probably making about a buck and a quarter in 1993, which is still a lot of money. Don't Don't get me wrong. It was a lot of money. But back then, it was a lot more money. And I was able to pay off all my debts and get caught up and, and put some money in the bank and I didn't feel pressure anymore. So I was, I told my wife, I said, I'm, I'm going out to LA and I, and my intention was to try to become an independent producer in LA. That all went down about three or four months before Watts got fired. So once Watts got fired and then Bill Shaw comes in and says, we're going to hire an executive producer. Cool. I didn't even think about applying for the job at that point. And Bill said, if you know, if any of you think, you know, if you know someone, if you can recommend somebody, you guys want to put your name in a hat, feel free. So I went home, I told my wife, I said, why not? Well, if I get it, I get it. If I don't, I don't. I'm going to go to L.A. anyway. I've got a show sold to Fox because it was still viable at that point. I had nothing to lose. I says, screw it. I'm, I'm going to throw my name in the hat. So I did I have my first meeting with Bill and it was more of a get to know each other. Cause Bill didn't know who I was. You know, Bill went from human resources at Turner broadcasting to now having to get to know people in WCW. So the first meeting was very, uh, I don't want to say standard, get to know each other kind of meeting, but I made it through that. And he said, okay, I want you to come back. This is this like a week later. I got a phone call. So, okay, come on back. Let's have another meeting. And I went, wow, I got a shot. And I, I I, brought all the artwork, all my storyboards, all my pitch material that I used to sell that show at Fox, I brought with me. And for, for, I was Bill Shaw asked me, he said, okay, what would you do differently with WCW? I said, well, first thing I would do would be to increase the production values of the show because it looks like shit, to be honest. It's horrible. And the second thing I would do is I would expand the brand because we don't have any kids that watch our show. And that's where the advertising is at that time. That's where it was. That's where it was for WWE. said, we need to, we need to expand outside of the ring with the WCW brand. He said, what do you mean by that? "Eh, Glad you asked. (laughs) Let me show you. Pulled out my pitch materials, my storyboards and all that. And it blew them away. Had my third meeting. Got to be a little more serious. Questions were more serious, more specific. Evidently he liked my answers and uh I got the job. That's that's awesome. Basically, I was a salesman. That's all.
1: Yeah. So um Yeah, it, obviously there there's there's quite a bit to that story. Um didn't know Jason Hervey was in Back to the Future. <laughs> that's my big takeaway from it. I didn't realize that.
3: Well, don't 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 No, I, that, I looked man. it up.
1: He he is. I he think was. he
3: was. He, he played the uh, the
1: think... the uh Nintendo game, the uh hunt hunt uh, No 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 that was um Elijah Wood. Not Elijah Wood. Oh okay. Who was kid for, I I don't know. No no he was one of the Marty's family from 1955. Anyway, um so so Eric, uh, right. so you you currently connect with the the wrestling community through two different podcasts. You got 83 Weeks in Strictly Business. Can you ta- tell us a little bit about this podcast as well as uh, how you got connected with Conrad Thompson and you know his whole crew?
3: Yeah, I mean, I'll start with how I got connected with Conrad. I had tried um a young man by the name of Nick Houseman. Who I think works for wrestling Inc today. Um, Nick reached out to me about six years ago and said, "Hey, you know, I, I really think you should do a podcast. I'd love to do it with you." And, and I had been approached by three or four other people about doing a podcast, But every time I asked them questions, like, how does it work? Where do your advertisers come from? Who's out selling the advertising? You know, uh, how do you get paid?" Just basic, fundamental stuff. These people that were calling me to do a podcast couldn't answer it. So I just said, eh, nah, I'm not interested, not interested. I turned down probably three or four opportunities just because the people that called me really didn't know what they were doing. They were just excited about doing a podcast. Hadn't really thought about how to make money with it. They just wanted to do a podcast. So I passed out. But when Nick Houseman called me, I asked him the same questions. I asked everybody else, and he had some answers. And I went, okay. Cat is at least he's done his research, and he was a very energetic, very charismatic, you know, upbeat at least I thought he was. Um, guy, and I thought, you know what, why not? I'll just try it. What, what have I got to lose? If it sucks, it sucks. I just won't do it anymore. It's not like I'm gonna go to jail if it's yeah. not any good. So I said, sure, let's do it. And we, d- we did it for, I don't know, six months or so maybe a year. And it just wasn't getting anywhere. Not, not, not to, I mean, we sold some advertising in it, but it it wasn't sufficient to warrant the time and energy I was putting into it. On top of that, Nick, Nick and I were kind of like oil and water in some respects. Uh, Nick is a very super woke snowflake (laughs) and I'm not. And Nick made the mistake of saying, "Hey, maybe we should." You know, and we had, we acknowledged it. You know, I mean, it's two different people, and that's cool. I don't have a problem. You know? John Elba, who is my co-host on Strictly Business, is a very liberal, progressive uh, individual. And politically, we don't see eye to eye on anything, but it it doesn't get in the way. You know, I, people don't have to think the way I think or believe what I believe in order for me to get along with them. I have a lot of friends that don't agree with some of the stuff I think doesn't matter to me. But anyway, I, I, Nick made the mistake one day. He said, Hey, let's get into a political debate. That was a mistake for Nick because I, I do a lot of research. I spend a lot of time and I always have since I was probably in seventh or eighth grade, right after Martin Luther King got assassinated. I had a teacher by the name of Mrs. Fields. who is was my social studies and current events teacher in Detroit. And she taught us a lot after Martin Luther King was killed. She spent a lot of time really talking about the Civil War and the efforts to bring equality to the black community and all that. And she took us on a trip to, oh, what's the name of that museum? I can't, I can't believe I can't remember the museum. Doesn't really matter it Greenfield Village. There was a there's a museum. They're still there to this day. And the chair that Abraham Lincoln was sitting in when he was assassinated, was on loan, and was in this museum, it was in a glass case. So you could see it. You could walk right up to it. You could touch the glass case. And I stood there for the longest time and just Appreciated or absorbed, I guess is a better word. Here I am, this kid in Detroit, sta- standing next to the chair that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. In. And Mrs. Fields, I never even knew her first name, but she inspired me to really become interested in current events, and that. And that was just the catalyst. There was a lot of, you know, we'd take out, find things that we were interested in that were happening in our local community and cut out the clippings and then bring it to school and we would all discuss it. And students would share their opinions or ask questions and the teacher would guide all that, Mrs. Fields. And from that point forward, I keep myself pretty well immersed in current events. I was like probably the only kid in high school that was like, couldn't wait for um, all the stuff that was going on with Nixon. Every time they would have a hearing or something on television, I'd drop whatever I was doing, you know, to to check out Watergate coverage. I was 17 years old. All my buddies were out chasing girls and getting high and doing the things that 17-year-old kids do, and I was at home watching the Watergate hearings. So when Nixon said, let's get into it politically, okay, we'll do that. He didn't really spend a lot of time learning, understanding. It was he was all emotional. It was all emotion for him. There was no no logic or or knowledge. It was just emotion. And we got into it one day, and I, I think I broke him <laughs> because he didn't know what he was talking about. And I, of course, I was just grinding him into the dirt because I thought that's what he wanted—that controversy. And after that, he just. He was broken, and we decided, that eh, this is probably not the best idea. I promise I'll quit talking <laughs> so much. So about a year later, Conrad Thompson called me and he said, "Hey, are you thinking about?" Because he'd already been doing a podcast with Bruce Pritchard; it was very, very successful. He said, "Hey, you think you maybe interested in doing a podcast?" Or maybe I called him. I'm not sure which. I might have called him because I'd had a couple conversations with Conrad prior to this, and. Uh, We decided we're going to do something together and see if it worked, see if we had fun doing it. It was a prerequisite. We both said right off the bat, look, let's just, we'll do this. And if we have fun and it works a little bit, we'll keep doing it. If we're not having fun, we won't. That was our agreement. Handshake deal. And the first couple I did were a little rough, but it took off. Immediately became one of the top wrestling podcasts. Out there, it's called 83 Weeks, and it's really all about the Monday Night War era, primarily. Probably 80% of our show is all content that's around that era, the Monday Night War era. So it's all nostalgia-based, as most of Conrad's shows are. Almost, well, all of them are, are all nostalgia-based. And then, uh, like I said, it, we've been we've been doing it now for a little over five years. We just celebrated our fifth year anniversary. 200, and, we've done about 256 shows. Our shows are about two and a half to three hours a piece. So we've got anywhere between 500 and 750 hours of content out there. And it's doing really well. And I had so much fun doing it that I thought, you know, one of the unique things that I bring to the table is I can talk about the business of the wrestling business. I can't tell you how to do an arm drag. I can't talk to you too much about what goes on inside of the ring. I, as an observer, I tell you what I like and I don't like, but You know, I'm not a wrestler, so I can't come to you from that point of view. I also can't tell you about all the crazy shit that I saw on the road because I wasn't on the road. I'd fly in, do my TV, fly out. I was, I didn't travel like wrestlers do. You know, you spend 10 15 years in a car full of guys running around the country. You're going to have a lot of great stories to tell. And I i didn't have any great stories, but I had had a unique insight as to the business and I accomplished some significant things along the way. Like beating WWE for 83 straight weeks, for example. it's how the show's title came about, by the way. I actually beat WWE for well over 104, 105 weeks, whatever it was, but there was 83 weeks in a row. Had a lot of fun doing it and decided, you know, I'm going to do one that's just talking about business. Because that's what people like mostly about our show. It's the feedback that I was always getting. is, man, I love, you know... Your show's great and Bruce's show's great and his show's great, but I love your show because you you, you can take me behind the curtain and, and take me into the weeds and explain things to me about the business of the wrestling business that I was always curious about. So that's how Strictly Business came about about six months ago.
1: That's pretty cool, Eric. I right. I actually uh I like the YouTube clips because they're like no more digestible. They're about 10 minutes long or so about each subject matter. Um, yeah. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. I really enjoy those programs. All right.
3: Oh, I'm glad to hear that.
0: Eric famously when the ultimate warrior debuted in WCW, he greatly ran over time. How rigid is the recording schedule and how do you compensate
3: when things like that go off the rails? Well, we weren't recording. We were live, which is the real problem. If we yeah. were, if it was being recorded for tape at a later date, that's easy. You just edit it but we were live and yeah, he went, I think that interview was scheduled for like seven minutes, which is a long promo. Seven minutes is forever. Unless you're really, really, really good. And you have something really, really interesting to say. Seven minutes is a freaking lifetime on camera. (laughs) And warrior came out. I think he went a little over 25 minutes. Now the problem with that is <clears throat> you have commercial breaks scheduled throughout the two hour show. And in order to fit all of the commercials in, you have to stay within your allotted time. Now you can go over a little bit here and there, and it always happens. You know, if, if, if David and I are in a match, And we're sitting back in a locker room getting ready, and we find out, oh, we've got uh, seven minutes for this match. Our jobs are to hit seven minutes, not six minutes and 50 seconds, not seven minutes and 30 seconds. You're supposed to hit seven minutes. Now, it's almost impossible to do it consistently right at seven minutes or whatever the time, time frame is. But you... You got to get close. If you're a pro, you're going to get close every time. And the reason that's important is because you only have so many commercial breaks that you can fit into a two hour show. you got to get all those commercials in because that's what pays the bills, but you also want to leave enough time for the rest of the segments to be what they're supposed to be. So if someone goes over a minute or two, guess what? The next match is going to be a minute or two short. You're going to have to take it out of somebody. So the match that follows the person that went a minute or two long ends up being cut by a minute or two where the wrestlers that are involved in the match that ends up getting their time cut are not going to be happy about that. Number one, they've laid out a match that was designed for seven minutes or whatever their time frame was. Number two, if you're taking time out of the match, what does that mean? That means they have less time to get themselves over they have less time to do the things that they thought they could do to help improve their storyline or, or the, the audience's reaction to them. So that was a problem. But for someone to go over like 16 minutes was a nightmare. It was a freaking nightmare.
1: Oh man. Yes. I'm I'm guessing you had to rework everything with that. Didn't you? Um,
3: yeah, there was some major reconstructive surgery. <laughs> All live on, on Monday.
1: Night. Yeah. So, anyway, um, so your your first book uh, was titled Controversy Creates Cash, which I, I, I recall back during your first reign as Raw GM on screen. Um, that was kind of like a theme you were going with, which you played off the book and so forth. In the real world, does controversy create cash, or is that strictly limited to wrestling kayfabe?
3: Are you kidding? Look at the news, look at 24 hour cable news. It's all controversy. It's not news. There's no information coming your way. Not real information. Not both sides of a story or new information. It's all designed to create emotion. In fact, not long ago, a couple years ago, I did a, uh, a TEDx talk. It's like a TED talk, but, and it's part of the TED talk organization not even sure what the X stands for, but I did a Ted talk. You can look it up, Google it. It's pretty interesting actually. But I talk in that Ted talk, I talk about how television news is more like cable news is more like professional wrestling than professional wrestling. It's the controversy and, and finding ways to push people's buttons, to create fear, to get them angry, to divide them to create good guys, bad guys. That's what cable television is. It's all it is. Can't stand it. It's freaking horrible. You watch today. Here's, as an example, I don't want to go too far into politics, but this this is just a reality. You have today a news conference where the president of the United States is accused, and not only accused, there is evidence, hard, cold, factual evidence that the Biden family has received ten million dollars in payoffs from foreign entities through Hunter oh. Biden. Only one cable outlet covered it. <laughs> I, I, I don't. It's hard for me to imagine, and they still call it news, which is, it's not, and it's all around controversy. You know, look, look at so much of the success that you see in big companies Look at what Twitter did Look at Elon Musk comes in carrying a kitchen sink. He yeah. takes over Twitter. Bah, people go nuts. Twitter's on the verge of becoming profitable yeah. for the first time, yeah. you know, and controversy does work. Controversy can work against you like anything. You know, it's like food, you know? it's just, even the healthiest food you can find if you eat too much of it, you're going to get sick. You know, and controversy got to be a little bit careful, especially nowadays, because I think our culture has narrowed the lanes so much. It's unforgiving now. You have to be really, really careful. If you're trying to create controversy and stir things up, you've really got to think it through, because it can backfire very easily in today's world. That's so why I'm glad I'm not in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I just—it's—it's it's
2: ridiculous. I think as Bill Maher, I, I think on one of the shows he said that he used to to get ahead, you had to work hard. Hard and do, work harder than everybody in front of you now you just want on somebody to say something stupid
3: yeah and and it's it's incredible and now that people know that they're like competing to 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 s- who could do or say the most outrageous stuff to stay in the public side because that's you're a public person and you make your living in the public domain you got to keep yourself out there and it's it's just obscene now. The things that I see are just like I have a hard time with Twitter. I used to love playing with people. I'd mess with people on Twitter. I'd piss them off. I have fun with them. but it was to me it was entertaining. You know? I don't even I can't even look at it anymore. It's so hard to look at it because it's just gotten so toxic and vile and stupid. I don't mind the toxicity, you know, because I don't have to. When I see something I feel is toxic or vile or demeaning or degrading to other people. I don't have to look at it unless I choose to. But when the vast majority of what you see in any form of social social media is garbage, I just quit looking at it. Eric, I want to
2: go in a different direction real quick. Um, Because this podcast is directly uh, positioned to people in the attractions industry, and that's like Disney, Cedar Fair, King's Island, universal so that a lot of people are going to uh listen to this or part of that industry either they attend to park a lot or they they work for one uh so-
3: by the way molly miles who worked at fox tv and oversaw fox children's programming ended up at universal studios several years later We're talking about four or five years later she was the vp of operations at Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida, which is the reason why WCW ended up shooting a lot of our shows down there. So a little tidbit there for all your attractions.
2: Now, but there's actually a lot of uh, parallel situations that you found yourself in at Turner uh, in some of the large-scale mergers that happened in the industry. Uh, AOL Time Warner uh, got so large, that everything sort of collapsed in on itself. You had a front row seat to that, and a lot of the things that you did were affected by that. Similar thing happens to uh, a lot of the organizations in the attractions industry. Back at the turn of the millennium, Six Flags went on a buy and binge. They found a bunch of smaller parks. Yep. And then a few years later, they had to sell them. And a lot of them, there's literally nothing left of them uh, other than some scorched ground from where they used to sit. Uh, Paramount got involved in the, in the game. They had Paramount Parks, found out it was a little harder to operate than they thought, sold it. And then uh, CBS got involved in that and they sold the portfolio to Cedar Fair. Um, and I think it was a year or two later. Uh, I think even SeaWorld had put a bid out to uh, to Cedar Fair. I'm not. It was an unsuccessful bid. I can't imagine a merger that size would have went well. But what was your experience during that time when you were uh, working for Turner? Because a lot of things came in there and completely changed the environment. Uh, you were running a very profitable end of the industry or of their company at that time, and is it, people could say you're indirectly affected by, it, but I, if I'm correct, I, I think you, you're, Oh, we were, were directly, directly affected, affected
3: by it. By it. I, I am absolutely convinced. And, and by the way, if you ever, if you're ever really interested, um, a friend of mine by the name of Guy, he became a friend because he wrote this book. His name is Guy Evans and he wrote a book called Nitro The Incredible Success and an Inevitable Demise of Ted Turner's WCW I think that's the name of it. He was actually my co-writer on my book. His book is the only book I've ever read that accurately in a phenomenal detail. He did over 120 interviews with people not only in WCW, that was actually a small part of them, but he interviewed people key people that were so far above me on the food chain at Turner Broadcasting at the time, and got their points of view on the merger and what happened in WCW. Mm-hmm. Cannot recommend that book mm-hmm. highly enough. I really encourage anybody that's interested in not only wrestling and the wrestling business and WCW's part in it, but more importantly how mergers work not how they work on paper, how they work in real life. That merger was a disaster. In f- f- fact, I th- I've read in several different publications where it is considered the worst merger in the history of mergers. I mean, AOL, you can't even yeah. find it anymore. It doesn't exist. And Turner, Ted, Turner broadcasting was such a successful entrepreneurial mercurial success, you know, Ted invented 24 hour cable news. CNN was a juggernaut around the world. It was the standard. Now it's in the toilet and it's a lot of, it has to do with the merger. That's where it all started. So not only was WCW affected, but a lot of the companies, a lot of the divisions of Turner broadcasting were devastated by that, that merger. It was a disaster. And imagine this, Imagine this, it's 1998, August of 98. WCW is making projected in in August of 98. We were probably projected to do about $350 million. Remember when I took over WCW, they were grossing 24 million and losing 10 by 1998 after I'd had control of it for about four years, five years, we were generating 350 million plus dollars in revenue. And depending on whose accounting you choose to believe somewhere between 50 and $80 million in profit. So that's what I'm doing in August of 1998 until I get a phone call to come to a meeting. Now this is pre-merger, right? Time Warner was already there, but now, Time Warner, Turner are prepping for the big play, that being AOL. So I get called to a meeting. I I go in. Now, keep in mind, I was a character on television. I had hair down to here, probably had three days of growth of beard on. And I drove my Harley to work that day. Ted Turner's car was parked in his spot. And I was like four spots down from Ted. Ted used to drive a Ford Taurus to work. He was like a billionaire back then. He drove to work at a Ford Taurus. That's how cool Ted Turner was. So I I parked my, and it was a chopper. My Harley happened to be a chopper. So I pull up, I got jeans on, boots, hair. I go, oh, I got a meeting I got to go to. So I jump on my Harley, I go to Techwood, which is another facility down the road that I had to go to for this meeting. It's where, you know, this is the original Turner headquarters, actually. So I go in and I walk into this meeting and there's like 14 people sitting at a really long table. I only recognize two of them. I sit down, it starts out cordial, go around the room, everybody introduces themselves, tells me what they do for a living. Cool. Why am I here? I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing here? Finally, it starts out. Well, we Eric, we wanted you to come today because we want to talk to you about your company. Okay. What do you want to know? Well, it's not that what we want to know. We want to change some things. Now, keep in mind, one of the things that I did that got us to the point that we did and created the Monday Night Wars, by the way, and forced WWE to quit producing television for teens and preteens and create the Attitude Era, which didn't start till a year after I'd been kicking your ass. Now, they, Vince hung on to that teen and preteen model For as long as he could, but after 83 weeks of getting curb stomped and losing ground and losing money to the point where they were about ready to shut the doors, Vince decided to do what I was doing and go after the 18 to 49 year old audience, which was a smart move. So just as Vince is getting his feet wet, he brought in Mike Tyson. He's got Sable running around with her breasts in her hand, you know, painted. I mean, it looked like a, a scene you would expect to see at Mardi Gras at about 2 o'clock in the morning, right? All this stuff going on, that's who I'm competing with now. So now we're both competing for 18- to 49-year-olds. This guy by the name of Joe Yuva went on to become one of the most powerful people in television, by the way. He was the head of ad sales for Turner Broadcasting. I had never met him before. I didn't know who he was. He says, well, Eric, here's what we'd like you to do. We want you to make WCW family-friendly. You mean like you tried to do back in 91 and 92 and early 93 when you were losing $10 million a year? I mean that? eric that's what we want you to do i said joe i should have called him mr u because i didn't know how big of a deal he was i really didn't or did i care at that point i said joe let me ask you a question what night of the week is nitro on crickets he didn't know nobody in that room ever watched wcw nobody in that room knew anything about wrestling knew anything about the history of wcw had no idea how we went from grossing $24 million a year and losing 10 to grossing $350 million a year and delivering 50 million to 80 million to the bottom line. They had no idea, but they decided I was going to change the nature of my product and I was going to change the audience. I was going to change the product to target a different audience. And I went home after that meeting, after that day, I went back to my office and was like, what the hell? This is ridiculous. I was pissed. And I I went home and I told my wife, I said, ah, I think I had like a year and a half left on my contract at the time. I said, I don't think I'm gonna do it. I think I'm gonna give them my notice. They may or may not let me go, but I'm 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 done. This is stupid. This will never work. This will crater this company. And i'm I have a lot of faults, like if we did an alphabetical order thing, I could pretty much fill that ticket, so i'm 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 not suggesting that I'm the best human being in the world, but I am a loyal person, I'm loyal to a fault, and it's like, man, I can't just quit. I'll just stay and fight this is what i did i fought joe yuva i fought everybody i could think of to fi- i argued with people i had no right to argue with head of finance <laughs> i mean people that were really they're on the executive committee like they pull all of the strings i'm calling them out making fun of them and i did that because every time up until that point every time there was a conflict internally if i couldn't come to an agreement with my counterpart, somebody at TBS or somebody at TNT, for example. If I held my ground and they held their ground, we'd end up sitting in front of Ted Turner. And 99 times out of 100, I'm walking out winning. Because I proved myself to Ted. Ted loved WCW. Ted loved wrestling. Ted Turner would call me every Tuesday afternoon for a year and a half after the ratings came in laughing like a college kid at his first frat party. He was so excited because we were doing so well. And because I had that, and I don't want to mislead anybody here. It's not like Ted and I hung out. We were social friends. We weren't. I only had a handful of meetings with Ted Turner through my entire career, small handful, (laughs) maybe three in total. One of them was really important, but Ted had a lot of confidence in me. So anytime there was a conflict, I, I just hold my ground. Now sometimes I, if, if I was wrong or if I, if a compromise was a better solution or whatever, it wasn't like I would, everything had to be my way. I don't want to give you that impression, but if I firmly believed I was right and decided I was going to put on the gloves or take them off. And as the case may be, I would because I knew eventually I'm going to sit down in front of Ted and I knew my odds of winning that battle were really, really good as long as my logic was based in or my thoughts were based in logic and common sense. What I didn't know is at that time, Ted Turner was being relegated to nothing. Ted Turner had was beginning to lose control of his own company. Now while they're preparing for the big AOL merger, right? Cause that was the mother load. That was the one that was going to make Turner broadcasting bigger than CBS or NBC. That was the hope. Anyway. Um, They all went about their business. They messed with WCW dramatically. Me, they cut my budget in half, by the way, halfway through 98, not even more than halfway through 98. They cut my budget by about 35 or 40%, even though the budget had been approved the year before. And even though I was over delivering in every category against my budget and my forecast, I was over-delivering in revenue by like 35 or 45%. But they decided to cut my budget because they wanted to allocate that money to other divisions that weren't doing well. So it was a disaster. And ultimately, if you read anything about Ted Turner, I think he had a biography, or it might have been an autobiography. Ted admitted he, he woke up one day after the merger and realized he didn't even have a vote. He, he was just a figurehead. I didn't know that. So while he's being relegated to being a figurehead, I'm picking fights with people that were so far up the food chain I couldn't see the soles of their shoes. And did, and and you know, eventually I got fired as a result of it. Wow. Did I bore you guys to tears? Or are you trying to soak <laughs> tons all tons of things? information,
1: Don? I think you have a question next. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I do. Uh, you're in the WWE Hall of Fame in the real world. Do you consider this like an honor or is it more of a storyline
3: or a little bit of both? No, not at all. It is. It's important to me. It was. I've had a lot of really great moments. You know, I can't pick one. Depends on what mood I'm in. <clears throat> if I'm feeling really melancholy, you know, a certain moment will appealed to me the most or whatever. But when I got inducted, first of all, I knew it was coming. It wasn't a surprise. But once it became official, and I was, it became official on the podcast with Corey Graves, whatever the name, I can't remember the name of his podcast, but he's got a podcast. That I think it drops on Wednesdays, but <clears throat> they wanted Corey to officially announce my induction on his podcast. And I knew it was coming. And I'm like, I am right here with you guys. Just talking to Corey and having a great time. And he said, well, Eric, you know, time has come. The real reason we wanted you to be here is to let you know that you're being inducted into this year's hall of fame. And even though I knew it was coming, I got really emotional. I I could, I could get emotional right now if I think about it too much. And it's not be, it's just when you're acknowledged by your peers, I don't care what it is. No matter what line of work you're in, if you're working with a lot of the same people for an extended period of time, whether you get along with them or not, it's your family. And in the wrestling business, wrestlers are an unusual lot of people. And not unusual in a weird way, but they've got a very unusual life. They have a very stressful and unusual family life. They've got a... Everything about the professional wrestling business is bizarro world. And some people make it, make it out, have a great life. Some people don't, as we all have seen. And that's true in rock. It's true in music. It's true in Hollywood. It's, you know, the, the performing arts once you reach a certain level is a very stressful way to make a living. It's a great way, but you got to be built for it. So by the time, you know, I'd been out of it now for a while and hoping to have been retired from the wrestling business and to get that call and to be acknowledged by your peers, especially given the circumstances, I almost put Vince McMahon out of business. They're literally hauling the water coolers out of Titan towers because they couldn't afford to have them serviced. Just the other day, I saw something published on social media. that was an email that was distributed amongst WWE employees at that time talking about the cost-cutting and all the things that they're going to have to do, and it was really bad. And despite all of that, Vince McMahon decided to induct me into the Hall of Fame. I should say WWE, but it was Vince McMahon's choice. And I find that to be really cool. And it it touched me. So when when people ask me, you know, because there's no physical Hall of Fame, you know, yeah, whatever. But to me, to be, you know, and you look at some of the people in the Hall of Fame, some of these people are legends. To be even included in the same sentence as some of those names, people that I looked up to and had respect for that achieved so many different things, uh, it meant a lot to me. It was no storyline.
1: That's awesome. I, I, I actually, when you, when you mentioned that, you know, you almost put Vince McMahon out of business. And so when I I remember watching live, I think it was like 2002 when they brought you in as the raw general manager, I'm still trying to find my my jaw on the floor from when you guys hugged and everything. You talk about something you never thought you'd see in your life, you know, but I guess it's business when it comes down to it.
3: Yeah. I never thought I'd see it either. You know, I mean, not only did the fans never see, never thought they would see that, but neither did I. Bizarre. It was cool as hell. You know, that was one of those moments. Like I said, there's, there's different. And those moments can last a minute. They can last seven minutes. They can last Absolutely. ten seconds. Yeah. That was a moment when I came through that crowd, and just you could hear. I don't know how many people were in the Continental Airlines Arena that night. Probably twelve, fourteen thousand. And you could just feel them sucking the air all out of the room. Was, oh, just like. <laughs> people were getting dizzy and falling over for lack of oxygen because 15,000 people sucked it all up all at yeah, the same time.
1: Uh, quite a, quite a cool quite moment. A st- it was very cool. And I had a
3: blast working at WWE. I just had so mm-hmm. much fun. Yeah, working.
1: quite a bit went behind uh, keeping it secret, but I'll relegate that to people purchasing Controversy Creates Cash because I want to be respectful of your storytelling ability. But, uh, but anyway, moving along, you know, uh, so one of the ventures that you had, uh, post, your your primary pro wrestling career was uh, you know, you had Bishop Hervey Entertainment with Jason Hervey, who we I wrote down to remind people that he was Wayne from The Wonder Years, because I didn't know if our younger audience would know that or not. But um, you know, you you've produced such shows as I Wanna Be a Hilton, Billy Ray Cyrus Coming Home, and my personal favorite one that you guys did was Hardcore Pond Chicago. How did your experience producing pro wrestling translate to doing like the skill set of doing more mainstream typical reality television
3: you know it actually had a it, it, producing wrestling and working with non actors who were asked to act in wrestling um, and learning how to do that i mean i i I became a pretty good better than pretty good i- i, I think I was an excellent director of young talent, people that were nervous, insecure, didn't have any idea of how to come out and carry themselves in a promo. You know, a lot of wrestlers, many wrestlers are really good at the actual wrestling part of being a professional wrestler. And they work on that and they work on that and they work on that. And then they get, they get an opportunity somewhere. And in the minute you put a microphone in front of them, they just collapse, right? Cause never done that or they weren't pro properly trained for it. So we ran into that a lot in WCW, you know, out of 10 guys that you'd put on TV, only three of them could really do an interview that wasn't embarrassing. And out of those three, only one of them was really good. And I was forced to learn how to, and because I wasn't on camera talent, I could relate. And didn't start out being very good at all. I sucked when I started, but I had to work through sucking. And I did, and I became actually pretty good. I wasn't Jim Ross, any stretch. But when it came to, it was certainly not Gene Oakland. Nobody ever will be. But um, I was, I was pretty decent. But I had to learn that. And I think the process of learning that gave me the ability to communicate differently to young talent that was trying to learn. Because I knew what they were going through. And I love doing it, by the way. I found it, you know, to to take somebody who wasn't really capable of stringing a sentence together, even when there wasn't a camera, and then get them to the point where they could go out there and actually be entertaining and do a great promo and, and enhance their character in the process. To be able to coach somebody through that or to that, I think is one of the most rewarding things about the wrestling business for me. I love coaching people like that, you know, directing them, coaching them, whatever, helping them. I love that part of the job. That's probably the only part of the job I really miss (laughs) that. And you know, the, the collaboration, the creative collaboration I miss, that's when you get the right people and the chemistry has to be right. Otherwise it's a disaster. But if you've got the right people in a room who are honest, can communicate, um, have thick skin, but are really creative. That's a blast, man, to collaborate in a room with people like that. Especially if you're each strong in certain areas, you know, so you complement each other. Um, that's a really beautiful process, and I do miss that. But that's that. Those are the only two things I miss about the wrestling business. Right, Eric. We
0: know you're an outdoorsman, and besides that, do you and your family do anything else for fun? Such as, do you have a favorite theme park?
3: You know, not so much now. You know, our kids are in their th- late 30s and theme parks. Are g- Although we do have a new grandson, Waylon James. Hey, Way J, <laughs> How are you, buddy? Uh, he's not listening to this podcast, but I have to say it anyway. Someday maybe he'll find <laughs> it down the road. But That's right. Um, I'm sure we will start visiting theme parks again, but the one that I want to go, there's two that I want to go back to. It's funny, I was just thinking about this the other day because i'm I'm I actually having an event in Cleveland uh, at the end of july july twenty third and I used to have an aunt and uncle that lived outside of Cleveland, and they took me to Cedar Point when I was a kid, and I think at that time Cedar Point had one of the biggest roller coasters in the country, at least that's what they said and I had so much fun at Cedar Point. The other one that I want to go to, I don't even know if it still exists, but it was called Kennywood. Kennywood was right outside of Pittsburgh.
0: Still there. Is it really? Sure is. Still there, still going strong.
3: Oh, man, I can't. Not on this show. I won't even tell you how much fun I had at Kennywood Park when I was about 15 or 14. It was an enlightening experience. (laughs) But I I missed it. I missed it. In uh, Minnesota... And when I moved away from Pittsburgh, I moved to Minnesota. There were no theme parks around for the longest time. And then they built one called Valley Fair, Mm -hmm. which is just south of Minneapolis, in a town called Shakopee, named after a Native American tribe. Um, That was a really great theme park. And it was one of the ones I had been to last, because everything was new. It was really cool. Yeah, that's- but though, though, that's really my theme park experience. That and, of course, Universal Studios and Disney World, because I produce television there. So obviously, especially at Disney, you spend a lot of time at Disney. Um, we used to produce our show there, our syndicated show we produced there. So I was at Disney MGM Studios for probably 10 days at a time, seven days at a time. And we'd shoot every single day, but we'd only shoot from like 9 o'clock in the morning till 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And then... We were done for the day. It was like a regular job. You know, when you're producing television, typically, you know, you drive for three hours, get to the arena, crew setting up television, you shoot TV, you drive back home, and you do it again next week. We'd go to Disney, MGM Studios, and we'd be there for seven days and shoot three or four shows a day. Two or three shows a day, I think, is what we try to do. And then you, you're you done at 4 o'clock, and, you know, all the talent was staying at the Marriott's uh, Residence real close to the Disney MGM Studios. And and they everybody would bring their families, their kids, the wrestlers and the production people would bring their families along with them for a week while we were down there working. And at night we'd all barbecue outside and eat together and hang out together and have fun in the pool. So a lot of great memories of Disney MGM Studios as a result of working there. Universal Studios I spent a lot of time at when I was working for TNA. <laughs> w- worked there for when we had WCW as well as i mentioned earlier but also spent you know 4 or 5 years there producing tv with tna yeah
1: that's awesome and not to make you jealous but i'll be at cedar point this weekend just for fun <laughs> oh you dog! yeah i know i'll have to send you pictures
3: or something um see that i got so excited about cedar point cuz as a kid growing up in detroit i'd never been to a theme park cedar point was like the first one i ever went to i uh, i was i don't know 8 maybe 9 and If you've never been to a theme park and you go to, I mean, Cedar Point was a great theme park back in the day, probably still is. But when it's the first one you've ever seen and you're an eight, nine-year-old kid, it's pretty, leaves a strong impression.
1: Well, Cedar Point, you mentioned that, you know, they had the biggest coaster in the nation or the, they've done nothing but build record breakers since then. So you've got like 40 years of record-breaking roller coasters and rides and, entertainment to catch up on. And, uh, you'd be surprised how built out it is. There's, there's hotels, there's RV camping, all sorts of stuff out there.
3: Awesome. I think it's great when you have things like that for families to do. That's one of the things that bothers me about, and I think about it, you know, my kids are fortunate. Um, they're both really, both of my kids are very, they're, they're successful. I don't want to say they're not very, very financially successful. My daughter is a television executive in Los Angeles. <clears throat> but she's young. She's working her way up the ladder. My son is in uh, construction sales. He sells uh, construction materials to large um, commercial builders in Florida. Got a great job, but they're really solid mm-hmm. people. We, we raise them well. I attribute that mostly to my wife. Um, they're very, very good kids. But I look at families now, and what do you do with your kids? You know what? it's just not enough to do. So I think having access to parks and whether you can go there and blow $500 in a day, or whether you just go there and hang out and go for a ride and eat some popcorn and have a hot dog, it's still, still fun to get out.
1: Good, clean entertainment.
2: All right, David. Uh, Well, you know, we're going to come, come to a close on this. And, uh, and Eric, first of all, thank you for, for taking time to do this. a little bit of a departure from the, the uh, topic matter they normally have. Thank and, goodness.
3: I appreciate that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and, and honestly, uh, just to, uh, to to cap this, and you, you allude to some of this in, in your book, if you want to get to where people can get that, but um, you are very unique in the sense that the decisions and the things that you did during the, the, uh, the, the Monday Night Wars era uh, as Ber- Eric Bischoff, the character, uh, and now Eric Bischoff, the person. But the decisions that you made that, that spawned the, the Monday Night Wars. Uh, now, by the way, King's Island in Cincinnati is just about a three-hour drive from Cleveland when you get there this summer. It's so not just flyover country for one spot. But um, I was at King's Island with my family the other night. And every once in a while, randomly, you'll come across an NWO t-shirt. Oh, yeah. And it's all one the other day. And, and quite honestly, uh, back in the day... Yeah, I, I did, uh, in my company did websites. People aren't going to remember a website. It's going to be something they point to as what not to do going on you know, in, the, in the future. But the thing you did, whether you were involved in wrestling or you watched it or you had nothing to do with it, back in the 90s, you heard about it. I, you know I what's really
3: like, cool, David, is, I don't know if you saw, but last, <clears throat> not this past Monday, but a week ago this past Monday, I did a guest spot on Monday Night Raw with Rob Van Dam. And, and I haven't been watching Raw. I mean, I don't sit down and watch a lot of wrestling anymore. I just Never. Um, I've, seen an, I've seen a lot. But so I haven't been watching Monday Night Raw, and I didn't really know storylines or what was going on. So I'm backstage, and Ray Mysterio comes running up to hug me, and he's got an LWO shirt on. WWE is running an LWO angle, Latino world order. I went, wow, that is so cool. An idea that we had, and it was actually, that was an idea. It was actually Jason Hervey's idea. That wasn't even my idea. That was Jason Hervey. We we're sitting down at lunch and we were sitting in a sushi bar in LA talking about something. Jason was such a huge wrestling fan. He goes, oh yeah, you know, I got an idea we got all these Hispanics here with these Mexican wrestlers. We should come up with the Latino world order and L- NWO was so hot. It was like, why not? We'll try it. And we did it. And it was really a fun storyline a fun angle. It didn't last a long time, but to see Ray Mysterio and, and Dominic, and you know, the LWO Latino world order out there in primetime and WWE in 2023 it was just like, Whoa, this is
2: whack. 25, 30 years later, people are still talking about it. It's, I love it. It's going to outlive any of us on this, on this podcast. It's going to outlive all of us. Anyone who talks about uh, wrestling now and in the future, they, they know good and bad and indifferent. The name Eric Bischoff, and will forever, uh, be linked to that time. Uh, I'm, I'm Thanks, a man. Red's fan since I, uh, Reds fan. And I remember back at that time that, uh, there were, uh, I think it was on TV. I forget what it was. The Reds would have a game, an afternoon game, and then later they would show up at the wrestling event, I believe it was at the uh, First Star Center or what whatever it was called back yeah. then. And there's pictures, I think, with um, uh, a number of Cincinnati Reds fans with, uh, I think it might have been Goldberg. I don't remember who it was. But uh, it, it was such a huge crossover into to the mainstream back at that time. And a lot of it was because the the interest that was drawn to it by decisions that
3: you made and, and things that you did. Yeah, it was a great time. I'm grateful to to have been a part of it, and, and grateful that there are still people today that will come up to me at conventions or whatever. It's a funny thing. And I'm going to have to run here shortly because I have another call I have to make. But um, I was at a convention. I don't remember. Is that, I don't doesn't matter where it was, it might have been in Nashville, but about four or five months ago, I'm signing autographs and I see this guy walk up that's about my age, maybe a little older, probably in his early 70s. He comes up, and with him is another guy who's about 38 or 40, and then a little kid. Kid's about 10. The kid comes up, and says, Hey, Mr. Bishop, can I have your autograph? Wait a minute. There's no way. How would he know who I am? But his grandfather and his father used to, and now they go back and watch it on Peacock, and, they, and the and the grandson and the son, you know, have become familiar with WCW and who Eric Bischoff was from back then just by watching Peacock. So it's like, man, thank goodness for Peacock and WWE <laughs> and you know the OTT thing they did because that that footage is out there and now you know, for me, obviously, but you know, there's so much great footage and historical footage that I'm hoping, you know, 25, 35, 50 years from now, people are still going back and watching it because it's some classic stuff.
1: Yeah, sure is. So Eric, I know you got to go, but before you go, will you just let us know your social, your books, where to find you, your podcast, just where can they find
3: more Eric Bischoff? Uh, you know, my social media, I, I, Twitter its about the only thing I do, and that's at eBischoff. My Facebook, I keep that to close family and friends, so I I don't give that one out. Uh, Instagram every once in a while, uh, the real Eric Bischoff, and that's usually my dog pictures and grandson pictures and non-wrestling type stuff for the most part. Uh, Grateful, the book is available at um, Amazon. You can find it there. And controversy creates cash. I think you probably find that on Amazon too.
1: Perfect. And your your podcast. Just one more time.
3: Eighty three weeks with Eric Bischoff, and anywhere you anywhere we're also on YouTube. You can go to YouTube and find us. Um, and then strictly business. Also, oh. if you in fact if you subscribe to eighty three weeks on YouTube, you'll automa- or in, as a podcast, you'll automatically be notified whenever Strictly Business drops. We typically do that on Thursdays.
1: Perfect. All right, Eric, thank you so much. We're going to have links to the, the books as well as the podcasts that you have and so on in the description of both the YouTube video as well as the audio podcast. So thank you once again for being on the show. Really appreciate the time, quite an honor. We've been looking forward to this for a long time. Thank you so much, Eric. All right, thank you guys. It's David, thanks for setting
3: it up. Good to meet you all. And uh, i sure we'll do this again down the road somewhere.
1: I sure hope so. Thanks, Eric. All right, see ya. Well, that was certainly interesting. So now it's time for a segment that we like to call the pick six. Don, what do we have first?
0: Well, the first story that uh, kind of intrigued me, it was in USA Today, twin brothers, Derek and Doug Perry. Uh, they took their mom's love for roller coasters to the next level. They've ridden over 1,100 coasters. They're not slowing down. So they travel around. They had all these new uh, like ride openings and things. And for me, what caught my attention, I put like my PR hat on, and I thought, if I was a PR director at a park, and knew that they were coming to my park, how I would be able to leverage that to get uh, the you know the news media out to do stories on them. So that's kind of why it really you know got my attention was just that opportunity it presents for a uh, PR manager, PR director, PR team,
1: uh, whatever parks they're visiting. Yeah, and I guess you're no stranger to this similar situation, you know awesome cool yeah yeah i I completely agree um definitely interesting uh i mean usa today picked it up so it's clearly a uh it's clearly a good story okay uh so next we uh we talked about this earlier with eric but uh cedar point just uh they opened for the season i'll be there this weekend um they opened up their boardwalk along with their wild mouse coaster which really looks really exciting it's a zamperla wild mouse custom design and it's a spinner um yeah, I mean, I'll have to report back next week how that is, because I'm super excited about that, along with the pavilion. What
0: are you most excited about?
1: Um, I always thought that Cedar Point, while it had great rides, kind of lacked personality, and I think this is going to be a huge step in the right direction for that. I mean, All right. that's my thought with that. Next up?
0: Next up, Dollywood. Finally, Big Bear Mountain. It's going to open on Friday. So that wait is finally over it's looked fantastic, all the photos and videos you know, of the construction and uh, just guests that have been to the park this year. So uh, I- I'm very excited that it's finally going to open. Looking forward to getting down there. What are your thoughts, Ryan?
1: I'm really excited. That's my number one thing, my number one new attraction that I'm excited for this year. That, and then it's closely tied with the Boardwalk at Cedar Point, but I think Big Bear is edging it out because that just looks cool. <laughs> yeah, just what a terrific fit for that
0: park. You know, we've always talked about, you know, different... Uh, you know, some rides are made for the thrill seekers, other, you know, rides are made for, you know, families and friends and that to enjoy together. This is a a ride that, you know, a lot of guests, as long as you meet the height requirement, you're just going to have a great time on it.
1: I I completely agree. So, um, Great Coasters International for the next one. Like, what is the story number? We're not even doing that. Story number four. Yeah. Story number Number four. four, Yes. Uh, they, they released, uh, some footage of Zambezi Zinger, um, which, that's super exciting! It made its first test rounds a couple days ago, as of this recording. Um, no word yet on the opening date, but I imagine it will be within a matter of weeks or so if they're at this point. But that ride looks really fun. Um, it's I can't tra- wait to try the new Infinity Flyer trains. What do you think about it, Don?
0: Same thing here with those trains, and you know, you look at uh, Zambezi Zinger. You know, from the renderings to the you know, just the photos and that that I've seen of the construction. And then you take a look at that first uh, test run that Great Coasters International did. It's going to be a ride that, number one, it's a throwback with the name to a popular attraction, Worlds of Fun, used to have years ago. So just that alone garners a lot of interest. But it's going to be one of those rides. You're going to ride it. You're going to come back in the station. You're going to want to get right back on and do it again. So very repeatable. I think they got
1: a hit. I I, I would be surprised if it wasn't a hit. What's number five, Don?
0: Dorney Park and Wildwater Kingdom, they begin the 139th season this weekend. 139, now that makes them one of the oldest parks out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, a number of events lined up this summer uh, 4th of July celebration, they got Grand Carnival coming there, a food truck rally, Halloween haunt, uh, the Great Pumpkin Fest. Uh, just a lot of fun to be had this summer. And, uh, you know, you grew up in. Um, you know, like at the Allentown area, you know, even if you're over in New Jersey, Philadelphia, all those different areas around there. I mean, this is, you know, history tradition. You grew up with Dorney park and there's a lot of people looking forward to the opening this weekend.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, how old is it? 139? 139, 139, 11 years from a milestone. And if that parent company does anything well, it's the milestone years as we've seen, uh, for Kings Island, Cedar Point, And then this year it looks like Carowinds and, is it Worlds? That's the other one that's turning 50? Worlds of Fun, yeah. Yeah, Worlds yeah. of Fun uh, have fantastic lineup, so it's super exciting. So, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking 11 years ahead for 150, but, you know, I'm never not excited about the 150th celebration of a park.
0: <laughs> yeah, and if you've not been to Dorney Park, you know, you're listening to our show, definitely get out there. I mean, it is like a throwback, old school, you know, it's going to remind you of what, the, you know, parks were. You know, decades and decades ago, you know, before the big thrill rides and everything came out, just so much history, tradition, great food. Um, you know, Allentown's a cool little town. You can find a lot of fun things to do around there, too. So I highly recommend if you like going to amusement parks, put it on the calendar, pick a date, and get to
1: Dorney Park. Yeah, not that it's, I mean, it has a hyper coaster and invert. Like it, it's got, oh, it does. Yeah. Yeah. It's got that, thrill but, rides, too. But it's
0: got charm. It's got charm and it's got some of those old school rides you just don't see anywhere
1: else. Yeah. Sure does it's the New York market too. So, you know, if you're ever doing New York City or you wanted to go to Six Flags, New Jersey on one trip or whatever, you, you could do that. All right. Number six. Are you tired of talking about this yet? Because we're going to talk about the surf coaster. So, or, uh, sorry, SeaWorld Orlando. Yeah. I am not tired of talking about it just for the record. That was a trick question. Uh, that opens Friday to pass holders and I cannot wait to hear what people say because, I'm guessing the sensation is going to be different because although it is a standing coaster, it does that thing with the hydraulic where it goes up and down. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts?
0: I'm looking forward to it. And same with you. I'm going to be, you know, dialed in on social media this weekend, just to see what everyone's thoughts are. Uh, you know, going to get to Florida at some point, uh, you know, this year, and uh, certainly it's on my bucket list to, to get a ride in
1: on pipeline the surf coaster. Yep. Exciting. And we'll, we'll probably report on what people are saying about that next week once, there's some uh, feet on the ride. Just people standing on the ride, shall we say. Well, anyway, uh, thanks for bearing with us. This was a longer show. Um, you know, a lot of cool information from Eric Bischoff. Once again, thank you to Eric for, uh, for being here. Make sure you check out his podcast, 83 Weeks, as well as uh, Strictly Business, which you can find on your favorite podcast apps. We're going to link to his books, Controversy Creates Cash, as well as Grateful, in the description to the, both the YouTube video as well as the podcast descriptions. Uh, make sure you follow us on Twitter at attractions underscore GRP. Give us a shout if you're interested in sponsorship opportunities. We got some stuff brewing, so it's gonna start filling up. So you better be early. And uh yeah, make sure you hit that subscribe button, hit that like button, and uh follow us on your favorite podcast apps. Don, any final words of wisdom? Just get out to one of your favorite parks this weekend and have some fun. I am gonna do that. I'm gonna go to Cedar Point. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Remember, controversy creates cash. Good night.